0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Eleanor Cleghorn became an unwell woman 10 years ago. She was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease after a long period of being told her symptoms were anything psychosomatic to a possible pregnancy. As she learned to live with her unpredictable disease, she turned to history for answers and found an enraging legacy of suffering, mystification and misdiagnosis. In her book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, Kleghorn traces her almost unbelievable history, the almost unbelievable history of how medicine has failed women by treating their bodies as alien and other, often to perilous effect. Today we're on Zoom. Our guest, Eleanor Clegghorn joins us from Sussex in England. Welcome to the program.
1: Hello, Tom. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Appreciate you joining us. Uh, And the magic of Zoom, I guess, right? Um,
1: Magic. The magic of Zoom.
0: (laughs) each other um, So you have a background I understand in feminist culture and history critical writings have been published in several academic journals I have a PhD in humanities and cultural uh, studies. I understand you've uh, appeared on the forum for the with the BBC which by the way airs on Sundays here on Utah Public Radio so that's a nice nice connection
1: Oh fantastic.
0: So congratulations on the book uh, very important uh, very interesting I'd like to start with a bit of your uh, story you 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 bring that in the end of your book but uh, then we could maybe loop back around um so uh in the introduction uh, you became an unwell woman 10 years ago what what were what were some of the symptoms what were you experiencing
1: I had just had my second son I was 30 And I've been through quite a complicated pregnancy with him. He developed a heart condition. And while my doctors were trying to puzzle out what was causing this condition, they did lots of tests on me and they found that something was happening in my own immune system that was attacking my unborn baby's heart. So my doctors knew that something was happening in my body. But of course, their focus at the time was on making sure that my unborn son's heart could be corrected and that he would be born healthy. He was thankfully born healthy and well. Um, But about nine weeks after that, after his birth, I developed a heart condition of my own. And I was um, ill for about a month or so um, with lots of pain and feeling, you know, just very unwell and I ended up being taken to hospital and as my doctors tried to sort of fathom out what was wrong with me, none of them really looked back over the notes and put together the pieces of the puzzle of what had happened during my pregnancy and what was now happening to me. Um, After about 10 days in hospital, I was visited by a consultant rheumatologist who looked at my notes and ordered immune-specific blood work and he said, okay, what's, what happened to your baby and what is happening to you are linked. And he eventually diagnosed me with an autoimmune disease called lupus or systemic lupus erythematosus, as its full title, which affects 90% more women than men across the globe and is quite difficult to diagnose. It can take sort of four to six years on average to be conclusively diagnosed. So in many ways, I was lucky to be diagnosed that swiftly because of a catastrophe or near catastrophe with my own health. But my diagnosis also brought into perspective some issues that I'd had for about seven years before diagnosis, where I'd started to experience what I now understand as some of the characteristic symptoms of lupus. So autoimmune diseases, especially ones that are systemic, like lupus, They can manifest in lots of different symptoms and affect the body, soft tissues and organs in myriad different ways. So from my early 20s, I've been experiencing joint pain, which is a very common symptom of lupus, and swelling and other odd symptoms like migraines and nausea. And these sort of happened intermittently and would wax and wane. And I would go to see my GPs, my doctors, and every time I came and tried to sort of explain how I was feeling, I was dismissed as either being hormonal or anxious and work stressed um, or possibly pregnant. One doctor asked me if I could be pregnant. So I was never referred for any further tests or for any investigations into the causes of my pain. So my diagnosis made me understand that this disease had been lying latent in my body, for years, and it just helped me make sense of what had happened in the past. And of course, if I'd been admitted for further tests, or my pain had been taken a little bit more seriously as the sign of an underlying disease, I might not have had quite the sort of health crisis that I ended up having later.
0: So uh, you made reference to a couple of the potential diagnoses, but I think it's a range of everything from Oh, it's maybe psychosomatic to, I I think, uh, possible pregnancy, right? There's a broad range of things that were, I guess, put forth uh, as potential diagnoses.
1: Yes, there were. So these sort of potential diagnoses tended to be, I guess, more sort of stereotypical ideas about what might be making women unwell. So more, less diagnoses, I would say, and more assumptions about what might be the cause of, you know, a woman, a young woman in her twenties, the pain that she might be experiencing. Um, so it was this, yeah, it was a sort of attempt at diagnosis, but one that where a stereotype about women's, a woman's pain or a woman's relationship to her pain, sort of obscured any sort of further thinking about what might actually be happening.
0: And you say, you write that, uh... You say you started to believe that you m- must have been making it up. Pain was all in your mind. You, <laughs> I guess the, the, so persistent was the pushback that you, you came to believe that uh, well maybe I am, maybe it is psychosomatic.
1: Yes, I did. I think I internalized a lot of the dismissal that I'd experienced. So I did begin to think that maybe I was exaggerating it, or maybe, yes, it was in my mind that it was because I was anxious or because I was stressed or because I was maybe paying too much attention to my body and my pain, which did have an impact on my mental health in my 20s. And it sort of also meant that I kind of pushed it away. Like I didn't, so I didn't sort of push and try and advocate for myself and try and investigate what might be happening because, you know, the messaging was quite clear that there was really nothing else going on with me. So I think, you know, that really prevented me from sort of, yeah, advocating for myself and trying to push for for more adequate care.
0: Obviously, one effect for you was, you did some research and wrote a book, right? But uh, before you got into that research, I'm curious, did did you suspect that, Oh, there might be gender bias here.
1: I think the gender bias that I was aware of, or that I was able to acknowledge, was sort of anecdotal. So I would, you know, think about what had happened to me. And then as I talked to female friends, to relatives, little stories would come out about how they had experienced similar kinds of dismissal and distrust especially around quote-unquote women's problems you know related to menstrual health related to reproductive health to gynecological issues so i sort of knew intuitively and anecdotally that this was an issue that was definitely impeding the medical care and health of people that i knew but i think in terms of understanding that gender bias in medicine was a systemic problem a medical cultural problem I think that understanding really came to me as I began to delve into the history first of lupus as a way of answering some of the questions around my disease that my doctors and consultants were unable to answer. And lupus currently is incurable, like the majority of autoimmune diseases, is, is incurable. It can be managed with medication and treatments and therapies, but it's incurable. But also medicine at present doesn't understand exactly what causes autoimmune diseases, or why these diseases tend to have a female prevalence. So even though I had excellent consultants and doctors looking after me after I was diagnosed, they were unable to answer some of the more fundamental questions I had about why I was unwell. So history provided me with a way of sort of getting to grips with how that knowledge had been obscured or what might have happened over the centuries and decades to prevent or or sort of limit our understanding in the present of these more complex chronic diseases that affect women?
0: Um, So let's jump in here. This is, um, uh, I mean, from that anecdotal uh, history, which I've I've heard as well, we we hear it in the press, and I think it's maybe becoming a little more well-known um, before we jump into history, there is an emotional component here, right? The introductory material has used the word enraging history. It's, um, it, you know, you go back to ancient times to today, and uh, one of the emotions is, I guess, anger, probably.
1: I think, yes, it is anger-inducing, and the history, what I really wanted to do is, as you mentioned, issues around the treatment of women when they navigate their illnesses and health conditions and uh, new phenomena like the gender pain gap, which explains why women, um, or explains that women tend to have their pain devalued in clinical settings compared to, to men's pain. These issues have been, I think they've become um, current sort of cultural touchstones just really over the last few years. So we're beginning to have more research that sort of legitimizes these anecdotal understanding that women have that they have to battle or struggle a little bit more to be cared for adequately when they are unwell. So going back, what I wanted to do was trace this back. And okay, so we have an, uh, we have an issue and it's beginning to be addressed now in sociological research in some clinical practice, and we're beginning to think about how to tackle it. But what I was interested in was where it came from in the first place. So I wanted to go right back to the beginning to trace the evolution of knowledge about women's bodies, minds and illnesses so that I could sort of build up this narrative story, this picture of how we got to the place we are today. And a lot of that, those stories that I uncovered, uh, it are enraging principally because medicine especially before it became the evidence-based science we know it to be today was really a system of social beliefs or a system of ideas that reflected the social status quo of the time. So if we go back to to ancient Greece where some of the first earliest medical tracts in what we would call our mainstream scientific modern medical canon were written. So I'm talking about, for example, the Hippocratic corpus, which are the collection of sort of foundational texts on the care of the human body from which we get our Hippocratic oath that our doctors still swear today. And those ideas that first formed this, this foundational knowledge about women's bodies, about women's organs, about women's illnesses, were also reflections of who women were supposed to be in society, You know what their purpose was. And at that point, I mean, ancient Greece was a patriarchal society. Men were dominant in that society, and women's primary role was to bear and raise children. So in terms of the limited access to kind of empirical understanding of the body, for example, the ancient Greek uh, ancient Greek physicians weren't dissecting; they were approximating through symptoms. They were developing understanding based on what they could see and hear. So they created knowledge that really sort of pivoted around and centered on the purpose of women, which was to reproduce. So from there on, these these ideas become very foundational. And of course. As the centuries evolve, as the centuries of the Western modern medical canon evolve, medicine has always reflected and reinforced some of these ideas about who women are and what they should do. And this has been more or less punitive, more or less punishing, depending on what is happening in the world at the time. So we have more, some more enraging episodes in our history, for example, the witch trials that took place in Europe between the 15th and 17th centuries, which were not exclusively targeting women, but women were the majority victims of that, you know, historical moment, which penalized women, especially those who didn't necessarily sort of adhere to a societal status quo of being wives and mothers. And so medical ideas were very intertwined with this. So there was a sense of women's organs, for example, being potentially corruptible because little was understood about them. So systems of belief get really unwrapped in ideas about women's bodies, and that produces these kind of ideas that today, when we look back, are anger-inducing and are enraging because of the sense in which they could be used to punish women at different points in history.
0: Let's take a break and we'll get back, back uh, much more. Um, I want to get into some stories of some uh, very interesting women that you recounted in the book, who like Charlotte uh, Perkins Gilman, Margaret Sanger. We know a little bit about her, clearly, a dual Mosher. Um, we'll get into some of some stories, uh, maybe start in the next segment with this idea of the wandering womb from ancient Greece. This starts way back, right? Uh, so we're talking with Eleanor Clegghorn. She's the author of the new book, Just Out, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a man World. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University MBA, offering opportunities to achieve new goals and further careers in the new year. The fall semester application deadline is June 15th. Information can be found at HuntsmanMBA.com. In
1: 1971, Robert Rosenthal was working an entry-level job for the New York Times when an editor called with a story of a lifetime. He says, I want you to come to room 1111 at the Hilton Hotel tomorrow, and don't tell anyone where you're going and bring enough clothes
0: for at least a month. And down the rabbit hole we go. I've slept in a room with two huge filing cabinets. I slept with the Pentagon Papers. On the next episode of Reveal. Monday
1: at 11 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR, and that is where I come in. I produce new stories in Spanish each week, and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19. But as things continue to open up, I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English.
0: Welcome back to i Time, Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is Eleanor Clegghorn. Uh, she's author of the new book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World, in which she traces the history of how medicine has failed women by treating their bodies as alien and other, often to a perilous effect. Uh, we are on Zoom today, so no calls, but you could email us. I'd be interested in your story um, in uh, navigating the medical system. Um, Perhaps you are an unwell woman. Tell us your story. Um, And the place to do that is by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, Eleanor Cleghorn, you went back in history. Uh, Tell us about the wandering womb of ancient Greece.
1: I gladly. So, the wandering womb has become one of these mythologies around. of very central mythologies around the way that medicine uh, sort of devised some very outlandish ideas about the influence of women's organs on their minds and bodies and illnesses and back in ancient greece so the hippocratic authors the authors of the first tracts on women's health they paid a lot of attention to the womb or uterus as being central organ in in women's health and as an as being the organ that had really the most influence on women's health. So some of the symptoms and diseases that the Hippocratic physicians described were things like womb suffocation, which sounds completely outlandish to, buy it to our modern ears, but it described a sense whereby the womb would impact the function of other organs such as the liver and and heart by moving out of its rightful place and sort of creeping up the body and this tended to happen according to these ancient physicians specifically when a woman's womb was not doing its ordained job of being you know full of an unborn baby so from there, so from, had, had so, so from there we had you had the accepted belief in ancient times that women's wings could move. And the movement from there you had the
0: accepted belief ancient times the Hi. Yeah, looks like we're cutting out uh, up a bit there. Are, are you back with us?
1: I am back with us. sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. I'm back with us. Yes, so as I was saying, so the ancient Greek uh, physicians developed these theories that women's wombs could somehow creep around their bodies and impact the function of their organs, such as the heart and liver. So this really created the sort of basis for a notion that a woman's uterus had a really profound impact on her body because it was somehow had a sort of animus or a kind of capacity of its own.
0: there we go i'm sorry i'm i'm just muting my video to see if that will help
1: okay i could do the same
0: yeah let's see if that will help uh if you just joined us by the way we're talking with eleanor Clegghorn. the book is unwell women we'll see if that will will help go ahead
1: okay so yeah, so from there, we have this idea that women's wombs have really profound influence on their bodies and minds. And the wandering womb actually was something that was discussed by Plato in a poem in which he said that a woman's womb could kind of creep about as if like an animal from a lair. And so what it really did was create this kind of mythological idea that a woman's womb was something that almost she didn't have any control over something that was linked to the notion that women sort of needed in order to be healthy, to procreate, to, to bear children. And so unless they sort of did this, which made, meant the womb was anchored and it behaved itself, it would start sort of issuing forth all of these problems and symptoms. And although theories about the wandering womb were quite swiftly debunked, um, Galen, the famous Roman physician, after he performed dissections, realized that the womb was in fact anchored in place by, by tissue. This, uh, the residues of this old mythology really persisted through the centuries in terms of this idea that a woman's womb, a woman's uterus has a, such a profound impact on her health that it can sort of cause illnesses and diseases if it isn't performing the social duty of mothering.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> we look back on this, we think uh, ridiculous, right? But um, uh, equally ridiculous ideas, you know, kind of uh, move forward through, through time. Uh, I wonder if uh, next you could uh, talk about uh, Isaac Baker Brown, um, mm-hmm. who, who had a, a radical cure for uh, hysteric and nervous disorders. Mm-hmm.
1: He did. So Isaac Baker Brown was a British gynaecologist working in the middle of the 19th century in London. And he was a controversial figure initially because he performed a surgery called ovariotomy, which was a very risky at the time, exceptionally risky surgery to remove women's ovaries. And there was a lot of debate in the London gynaecological community because around the time, gynaecology was becoming a professional discipline. It was becoming a gentleman's discipline of medicine and it was very important for that community to uphold good standards and not to be perceived as sort of butchers. But Baker Brown always fancied himself quite the radical and so he opened a surgical home specifically to treat young young women mostly who suffered from hysteria or nervous diseases and he believed rather barbarically that a lot of nervous illnesses and also diseases like epilepsy were caused by untamed sort of sexual desires in young women and they were actually activated in the body principally by the practice of masturbation. So he believed that by um, amputating part of a woman's clitoris that she would sort of be able to be cured, firstly, of her ailments, including something like epilepsy, but that she would, more specifically, that she would start to accept her domestic role as wife and mother, that she would sort of calm down her desires and thoughts and become marriageable. Um, But this was a highly, highly contentious practice. And even at the times it was deemed controversial and deemed to be very barbaric, but yet baker brown created a climate of fear around the idea that young women were making themselves ill and making themselves morally corruptible by engaging in this you know practice of masturbation so he he really was very active in promoting the clitoridectomy as the procedure was called as the as a cure for sort of hopeless young women who would otherwise you know Not be married and possibly even fall into a life of vice and prostitution. Um, Eventually, Isaac Baker Brown was hauled up in front of the Council of the Obstetric um, and Gynecological Council of Great Britain, and he was expelled by nearly unanimous vote for um, devising this um, mutilation that was leaving women, you know, sort of not just physically but scarred, but also socially scarred so he was expelled and then he got very ill and died and never practiced he never practiced medicine again and then he died but it's a really it's a very dark episode in the history of of british gynaecology but clitoridectomy was a practice that was performed elsewhere by you know doctors who deemed themselves to be more compassionate because masturbation was seen as a serious pathology at a certain point in the 19th century and it was definitely linked to chronic, to what we now would understand to be the symptoms of chronic illness, so pain, seizures, mental health issues, but would then seem as something that could all be sort of indexed back to a woman's sort of untamable desires or inability to exert enough rational control to stave off diseases of the body and mind?
0: I want to read... Um one of your epigraphs so this is Ann Boyer from the Undying published 2019 the history of illness is not the history of medicine it is the history of the world and the history of having a body could well be the history of what is done to the many in the interest of the few pointing out that uh, you know although Isaac Baker Brown this was highly contested in the end the medical establishment you know uh, rejected this this practice but these underlying ideas right even as science, even as medicine was going to, to, to be more science and evidence-based, um, culture plays a role, and I think probably continues to play a role.
1: It really does, and this spirit in which something like the clitoridectomy was able to happen in the first place was also because these ideas about women's sort of pathologies, the the sense that women needed to be you know cured they always needed to be cured of kind of the basic issues of being a woman so that means a tendency to be irrational a tendency to develop nervous disorders which were believed to have a profound influence on physical health. These ideas were were very much accepted so they could be very easily exploited too to more barbaric aims such as uh, those of Baker Brown. I mean it's still the same spirit of thought that went into the overuse of the ovariotomy procedure, which is the removal of the ovaries, which was done in the 19th century to help uh, treat otherwise inoperable cysts and tumours. So it was it did have a purpose and it was an advance in medicine, but it was also something that was overdone because there were gynecologists and gynecological surgeons who were wanting to sort of perfect their practice and further their reputation. And because women were already so pathological, they were sort of a willing were well not willing, but they were they were an easy subject, you know, they were a ready subject upon which to devise remedies, treatments and apparent cures for pathologies that really were social issues not issues that had not illnesses and diseases with you know a real biological cause in the body itself.
0: So tell me about the uh, craze for lobotomies this is the 1930s and 40s and you you write that by 1942 75 percent of the patients of uh, these doctors were were women Uh, let me just uh read the quote you and then have you talk about this you say in an era where a mentally healthy woman was a serene wife and mother almost any behavior or emotion that disrupted this uh domestic harmony could be interpreted as justification for a lobotomy this goes back to what you were saying before Uh, (laughs) this seems even more extreme right lobotomy
1: yes it was really extreme again, a treatment for that was popularized because women were always deemed to be sort of on the verge of kind of losing their minds. And this tended to be related back to how readily they accepted their domestic roles as wives and mothers. And the lobotomy became popularized after the 1930s as a radical cure for mental ill health, especially in women. And you know, some of the stories related to these lobotomies are completely harrowing. I mean, it was an unnecessary and barbaric procedure that had a really detrimental effect on the mental health, mental capacity, and emotional, you know, well-being of people who underwent it. That's if they survived the procedure. And Freeman and Watts, who were the neurologists who popularized the frontal lobotomy as a treatment for mental illness in the 1940s especially, published a book in which they included lots of case studies of women, mostly housewives, who were deemed to be you know miraculously cured of their nervous disorders, of their melancholy, of their you know hysteric tendencies by you know having a portion of their brain removed with a drill. And one of the stories that really haunted me, was of a middle-aged housewife who had been suffering from what I think what they called emotional instability. So what we would understand probably to be depressive disorder. And she underwent a lobotomy. And afterwards her husband apparently described her as being full of, and I quote, don't give a damnedness. And what really haunted me about this was that the lobotomy had literally severed her ability to make meaning of her life. And they talk about how she was, you know, retreated into an almost infantile sort of state of kind of bliss where nothing worried her. But of course, her mental capacity had been damaged to such an extent that she couldn't make meaning of her life.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> that's very, very troubling. Um, I wonder if you would, let me just read another epigraph here and then have you tell me about um, the author of this quote um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. So quoting here, as you do in the, in the book epigraph, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, this is from 1892. She says, you see, he does not believe I'm sick. And what can one do if a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one, but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? It illustrates a you know a power imbalance uh, here, not only in the, in the marriage, but with the medical uh, profession. Uh, Tell me about Charlotte Perkins-Gilman.
1: Yes, thank you. So Charlotte Perkins-Gilman was an early feminist writer and lecturer and thinker and activist. In the late 19th century, she wrote a very famous short story called The Yellow Wallpaper from which that epigraph is taken. And The Yellow Wallpaper was first published in the New England magazine in 1892. And it told the story of a woman who is forced to rest in a goodly uh, wallpapered bedroom by her husband, who also happens to be a physician, because she is suffering with what we would probably now understand to be postpartum depression. And as she's confined in, in this room, she becomes more and more troubled and her mental health deteriorates even further. Now, this story has remained one of the most sort of important artifacts I think in the history of women fighting back against these diminishing and misogynistic ideas perpetuated by medicine over the centuries but she was also writing it based off her own experience in um, the earlier in the 19th century Charlotte Perkins Gilman herself was suffering terribly with depression and she had tried many different things uh, in order to get better and eventually she heard about a neurologist one of the most famous neurologists at the time in the united states and he was named silas weir mitchell and he had a neurology clinic in philadelphia and he had devised a remedy or a treatment regimen called the rest cure now the rest cure was based on um, weir mitchell's observations of civil war soldiers who had become so distressed and so Um, damaged by uh, shell-shocked, as we would know it to be, that they were exhibiting symptoms that he believed were very similar to female hysteria. So working as a doctor, he devised a system whereby they would rest, the soldiers would rest, they would be fed a very fat, rich diet that included pints and pints of milk, like a really heroic amount of milk, and things like sort of beef broth and forbidden to sort of do anything at all. And the idea was that while they were resting and consuming all this really fatty um, sort of liquid food, they they would fatten up their blood and they would become robust again. Now, of course, at the time in the later 19th century, hysteric and nervous illnesses are, are apparently endemic, especially in American women. So Weir Mitchell adapted his rescue regimen for women who were mentally unwell But for him, and so they would follow the same regimen, which would be that they would be confined to bed for between one and three months. They would be fed this awful kind of milk and beef broth diet. They would be, and crucially, they would be forbidden from any intellectual or creative activity whatsoever. And very, you know, very minimal guests. If they were in his clinic, just a nurse to see them through that whole time. And... I mean, this in and of itself is a would have been a brutalizing and demoralizing experience for patients who underwent it. But Weir Mitchell himself had a rather sort of sadistic idea that women who were unwell, especially younger women, were attention-seeking, that they were developing symptoms because they wanted to escape their domestic duties, and they were using illness and sickness, specifically sort of hysteric-related symptoms, as a kind of way to check out of their lives. So he saw the rescue as much as 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 much moral medicine as he put it as a physiological cure, and he wrote about wh- when you're confronted with a sick woman as a doctor, you have to kind of break her resolve. You know, you have to break the sick woman's resolve, and the rescue was the way to achieve this. Um, Perkins Gilman followed Will Mitchell's regimen for about a month at his clinic and then was sent home with the prescription that she must um, rest in bed, be as close to her baby as she could, and never never touch a pen again as long as she lived. Now, for somebody who was a writer and somebody who was an activist for Change and Advocate for Women's Equality, this really was brutalising and had a really injurious effect on her mental health After she sort of completed this rescue regimen, she was sicker than ever and she was severely, left severely mentally unwell from it. And the yellow wallpaper was really her attempt to fictionalise but also bring awareness to other women who might be going through something similar or who might just feel that they couldn't question the authority of their male doctors And in 1913, she wrote a sort of follow-up piece where she talked about why she wrote The Yellow Wallpaper. And she said it was to prevent women from going mad so that they would become aware that this was happening and that maybe they could, you know, learn how to question it or understand that it wasn't... These kind of treatments were neither right nor fair.
0: Mm. We'll go to break here soon, another break. But uh, before we do, I I want to... um bring this forward to today. So as we're talking about these, these cases, and thankfully uh, some of these things are definitely not being practiced today. Right. But, 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 but there's still imbalances, right? You, you've encountered that. Um, So uh, part of this history indicates the, the, you know, the, the cultural, the power of culture uh, to influence medicine. Is, Is that still happening? Do you think?
1: Yes, I think so. And I think that what we have inherited is the legacy of some of these ideas being kind of impressed into medical knowledge or medical knowledge, clinical knowledge being formed around them, is we've really inherited this legacy whereby the dismissal and distrust that many women experience today when they go to see the doctor, go to see the physician, is it's present in the room and it's a residue. It's a sort of it's an it's a gender bias, indeed. It's a social one, but it's also cultural too, because medicine has always reflected the culture and we those myths have enormous sticking power so even though we might not be telling a woman to go rest for three months and invalidating the fact that anything's wrong with her at all we our tendency perhaps to believe that when a woman is in pain the cause is primarily emotional rather than physical is part of the residue of these old ideas and practices
0: well, let's take another break. We'll come back with our last segment after the break with Eleanor Cleghorn, who is joining us by Zoom from Sussex in England. Her new book is is just out, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. More following this.
1: On the next Putumayo World Music Hour,
0: we'll learn about that uniquely French style chanson and hear young artists from the Nouvelle Seine who have revived this classic sound and given it a new contemporary flavor. I'm Dan Storper.
1: And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for a musical visit to Paris on the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
0: For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. You're listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams, and we are talking with Eleanor Cleghorn uh, today, joining us by Zoom from Sussex in England. Uh, Her new book's just out. Um, It is called Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. Um, She traces the history of how medicine has failed women by treating their bodies as alien and other, often to perilous effect. And in the book, she tells her own story. Uh, She says she became an unwell woman 10 years ago, diagnosed with an autoimmune disease after a long period of being told her symptoms were anything from psychosomatic to a possible pregnancy. Um, So, Eleanor and I was uh, in a review of your book in The Guardian, they pointed out an interesting parallel. Um, I'll just quote The Guardian. During the recent anxieties about the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine as possible link to blood clots, many women felt obliged to point out on social media and the press, that the risk of fatal thrombosis was significantly higher from using hormonal contraception. And then the Guardian goes on to to list a history here of uh, how women had to to speak up uh, uh, because of of this problem. And then then they quote you, I'll quote you here. Um, From the beginning, the pill was couched as a way for women to take control of their bodies and fertility. But this also means that the costs, physical and mental, remain women's burdens there's there's another cruel irony right
1: yes it is a cruel cool irony the Astrazeneca the issues around the Astrazeneca covid vaccine in the UK related to potentially fatal thrombosis especially in women under 30 really did enliven these debates or bring these debates out around the fact that women are expected to um to just sort of accept the risk that comes with the taking the contraceptive hormonal contraceptive pill and this was often pointed out as you say tom that there was a you know a cruel irony in the fact that the astrazeneca vaccine you know the cases especially of fatal thrombosis were very very small but of course the risk the the, these kinds of risks really sort of insight Uh, hesitancy and fear in women because we do have this long history of perhaps being told that especially hormonal medications are safe for us. And then things being revealed later that show that women who had concerns around taking hormonal medication, be that contraception or maybe hormonal replacement therapy were right to fear what they were taking. And of course, today, you know, we have much more refined and lessened doses of hormones in things like the combined contraceptive pill. But it's been a really long journey for women to be accepted and listened to carefully when they complain of symptoms that they believe intuitively are linked to taking hormonal medications.
0: I want to uh, maybe move a little bit. I want to treat another couple of subjects, but to be, to make sure we get this in, I want to talk about uh, solutions, what can be done. Um, So you talk about being, how being unwell has become normalized in society and culture where women have long been distrusted as as reliable narrators of their own bodies and uh, pain. We've talked about culture and the, the whole backdrop of culture. So what, what can be done to, to prevent an experience like yours, you know, seven years or so of, not being listened to until you finally got a diagnosis.
1: Yeah, of course. I do have a lot of hope, even though this history is enraging and we really have a lot to, to sort of undo when it t- comes to the impact of these histories on the current uh, state of women's health care. I do hold a lot of hope because over the last couple of years, as women have been more empowered to speak out about their health concerns and have been more, you know, become advocates for themselves and others in uh, space like online spaces, for example, I am I do feel like the culture is changing around women claiming and owning these narratives of that illness and body experiences that perhaps previously, you know, shame, stigma and silence were, you know, wrapped around those stories. And they maybe felt like they couldn't question the authority of doctors and they or they couldn't, you know, advocate for better care. So I am hopeful. But I'm also very wary that, you know, telling women to speak up for themselves, telling women not to accept you know, to push for a second opinion or not accept what they're told, that's something that can be difficult for a lot of people. And so I think that what we need to do is we need a cultural change in how we think and speak about women's bodies and illnesses. But that needs to go hand in hand with systemic change from the top down, in terms of we need more information that trickles down to GPs and doctors who are invariably the first point port of call for a woman when she is in pain. So we need more, you know, large scale research projects that look into the causes and courses of these more complex, difficult to diagnose illnesses in women. So that things like diagnostic times, which, you know, for endometriosis is seven to 10 years at present, Uh, these diagnostic times need to be streamlined for both for for women's own health and, and lives and safety, but also just to improve our health services too and the burden on our doctors. So I think, yeah, we need cultural change and we need systemic change. And I do feel hopeful that this is happening as issues such as the gender pain gap become legitimized and they're becoming the subject of studies. So, you know, there are sociologists out there working out whether bias training, for example, can work for GPs, or whether there can be a different kind of onus on how people are spoken to and negotiated with when they're in the, you know, the operating, uh, sorry, in the uh, doctor's surgery or the doctor's office. So I and I am hopeful that this is beginning to happen, the cultural and systemic change that we, you know, desperately need.
0: In the book, you talk about a combination of misogyny and racism. I wonder if you could treat that for a few minutes here, just a couple, two or three minutes we have at the end of the program. uh, Important intersectionality of this problem.
1: Of course. And of course, you know, it's often said that the gender pain gap, it's not, it's something that, you know, widens depending on who you are. You know, women are not a monolith. And for someone like me, who is a white woman, I have, um, uh, statistically better care than a Black, Asian, or ethnically, or Latina, or ethnically diverse woman who will experience the double um, obstacle of racism and sexism. And we have also have a really ingrained history of how we think about women's pain, about Black women's pain specifically, that has sort of haunted medicine's history since at least the early mid uh, 19th century, when the perception that black women were insensible to pain compared to white women was used as a justification for some horrific abuses against black women's bodies um, in the name of gynecological progress. And one of those episodes is that of um, the gynecological surgeon James Marion Sims, who until very recently was lionized with a statue in Central Park and called the father of American gynecology. And he developed procedures that are still used today, but he used enslaved young black women as his experimental material. And part of why he did this was, you know, it's unjustifiable, but he was drawing upon his awful ideas rooted in anthropology, that black women just felt less pain than white women and these ideas have persisted as the kinds of racial biases that black asian and ethnically diverse women experience today when they report pain so whereas i as a white woman if i say that i'm in pain i might be perceived as being overly emotional a black woman might say she's in pain and have her pain completely invalidated so they're a real you know depending on who you are treatment is different. And so it's also as much as while we, you know, strive to overcome these gender biases that are impeding women's care, we must also look really carefully about how racial biases intersect with those to, you know, really prevent black women from receiving the care they deserve. And also, you know, fulfilling, you know, the health criteria that they should have access to.
0: Uh, Finally, just two minutes left in the the program. I wonder if you've you had your own experience with this then you delved into the history what's your number one takeaway what what do you hope people take from the book the the top thing
1: i really hope that anyone who reads it who has had a journey of their own with the healthcare system or has helped to try and navigate an issue with their body or illness i hope hope that they can feel uh, valued and validated And I hope that like me, when I began this research, that they can feel that they're part of a long and complex history that, you know, hasn't just demonized and diminished us, but has also been, you know, we've had some incredible women physicians, incredible women activists, incredible rebels and campaigners who have rewritten medical history as it's happened and helped contribute to the sort of more equitable healthcare that we're striving for today. So I think, yeah, to feel valued and validated and also to feel that, you know, if you are having a tricky journey or you're struggling for diagnosis or you're struggling to be taken seriously, that it's not your fault and that you might be up against a system that may well be rigged against us because of biases and prejudices present in medical knowledge that it's time that we really did unpack.
0: Um, it, this is always an unfair question,, uh, but I, I usually ask it um, unfair in the terms of you're you know essentially celebrating the book, completion of the book um and publicizing it. But the question is, what are you on to next? the, the other book in the works, or uh... I do
1: have I do have some thoughts along a long similar subject, but I'm at the moment, I'm sort of keeping <laughs> keeping the ideas and energy to myself a little bit because I've been so. Uh, busy with um, talking about uh, Unwell Women, which has had a fantastic reception. So yeah, there is something else in the works.
0: Yeah, that's all
1: I'm going to say so far.
0: Very very good. Understand, understand completely. Yes. Thank you. All right. Well, uh, the book's out, an important book, Unwell Women, Misdiagnosis and Myth in a Man-Made World. That's uh, just out and available. Eleanor Cleghorn has uh, joined us from Sussex in England. Uh, Thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me, Tom. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Pleasure for me as well. And thanks to our listeners for listening. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.
1: I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University. In partnership with Utah Public Radio, we are relaunching and expanding our Utah Women and Leadership podcast series.
0: We'll share research and resources about topics like imposter syndrome, gender and race, the impact of COVID-19 on Utah women and work, body image challenges, and more. Listen at utwomen.org or on your favorite podcast app. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. This is KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM, Logan, and heard online at upr.org. Get ready to bug out at the first annual Cache Valley Monarchs and Other Winged Wonders Festival Thursday, June 24th at 4 p.m. until dusk at the Heritage Park in Nibley. UPR will be there for a special Utah storytelling project where you can share your stories about caring for, observing, and preserving habitat for butterflies and fireflies. Look for the white UPR tent and sign up to record your story, poem, or song in celebration of our winged wonders. See you on Thursday, June 24th. A recent surge in anti-Semitic attacks has many Jews in this country wondering, where are our allies?
1: I don't think that the general population and progressives included among that have a good understanding of what they're looking at when anti-Semitic violence doesn't have a swastika attached to it.
0: Anti-Semitism and allyship, Monday, on All Things Considered from NPR News. That's this afternoon from 3 to
1: 6.30 with your host, Shalane Smith-Needham, on UPR.